Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative. That it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, May 9th, 2023, the 839th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do in this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So there's a lot of news I want to get to today and a lot of follow-up to stuff we've been talking about yesterday and, and last week. But before that, I want to share a little clip that popped up on Twitter today from Dr. Michael Yeadon. I imagine many of you are familiar with him. Here is how he is described in Wikipedia. 
Michael Yeadon is a British anti-vaccine activist and retired pharmacologist who attracted media attention in 2020 and 2021 for making false or unfounded claims about the COVID-19 pandemic and the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. The Times has described him as a hero of COVID conspiracy theorists and a key figure in the anti-vax movement. That's how this guy's Wikipedia starts. Here's how it would have started if they didn't have to first let everybody know right off the bat that he is a conspiracy theorist. He previously served as the chief scientist and vice president of the Allergy and Respiratory Research Division of the drug company Pfizer and is the co-founder and former CEO of the biotechnology company Ziarco. So chief scientist and vice president of the Allergy and Respiratory Research Division at Pfizer. That was his job. But that no longer matters because he's a conspiracy theorist. And hey, when it comes to COVID, aren't we all just conspiracy theorists at this point? At least from that perspective. Now, it's too bad that he turned into a conspiracy theorist because before he did, he was a renowned research scientist who Pfizer trusted enough to make a vice president of one of their divisions. But because he embraced COVID conspiracy theories, now he's been unpersoned. Well, how about this for a conspiracy theory? I spent a long time early in 2020 as a recently or semi-retired research scientist looking at what was going on, things like PCR tests, the absurdity of lockdown, great worries about the, the so-called vaccines barreling towards us. But rest assured, the so-called COVID-19 pandemic, um, I think the evidence is very strong from independent researchers. So this is not me saying it, I'm looking at their work, that there never was a viral pandemic of a novel pathogen and that the uh, deaths that we saw, I'm afraid, were medical malpractice at best and, and murder at worst. Uh, so that basically we were lied to from the beginning. Um, I don't believe there's been a novel cause of illness and death, significant illness and death, other than our government's responses to the fake pandemic. Now, I know that's quite shocking. It's, it's quite uh, uncommon for uh, kind of full on research scientists like me to say things like that because they sound like conspiracy theory. But I'm telling you, I have been nothing all my career except um, saying things as I see them. So I don't sugarcoat things because they're unpopular. And I won't bore you with it, but people can go and look up a researcher called Dennis Rancourt, R-A-N-C-O-U-R-T-E-R-T. He had a recent interview with um, uh, on germ warfare, a very popular podcast. And at the end of it, if you've listened carefully, you will be in no doubt that you'll be where I am now. Um, And why shouldn't it be a lie? They lied to us about absolutely everything. They lied to us about the magnitude of the public health emergency, which never existed. They lied to us about the necessity of having measures like lockdowns, mass testing, social distancing, masks, and it goes on and on. Every single one of those was known to be ineffective in interrupting transmission of some respiratory illness. It's been tested and they don't work. So now I've told you they've lied about the public health emergency. They've lied about the necessity and usefulness of the measures. And I'm afraid, back to my absolute wheelhouse, they lied to you 
about the design, research and development, and use, approval and use of the so-called vaccines. So, so that that's the backdrop. And I didn't get there in one leap, uh, but I started, you know, my journey. I think by the, when Boris Johnson said, "I must," I have to tell you, you must stay at home. That was the moment I knew we'd lost the country. And then noticing lots of other countries were doing the same, I thought, "My God, we're in danger of losing the free world." And I resigned myself to this is what we must face. And the outcome doesn't matter for me. I'm absolutely serious. If I perish attempting to avert this, it will be fine. It's about my children and grandchildren. So the former vice president of the Allergy and Respiratory Illness Division of Pfizer, a renowned research scientist, Michael Yeadon, says that the COVID-19 pandemic was fake that there was no novel respiratory virus that caused illness. And that is essentially the last barrier for people to cross once they have realized that the rest of it was a complete and total lie. We can go through and agree about the lockdowns and the social distancing and the masks and the school closures and the business closures and the effects of all that, the need for the vaccine, the vaccine rollout, the vaccine effectiveness. You can know that all of that coming from the mainstream media and from our government and from world governments was a lie, but people still believe that the virus was real. Well, there's no proof that the virus is real. That's something that everyone just has to understand. And you can understand that there's no proof that virus was real without then claiming that all viruses are fake, but we're going to get there too eventually, it seems. All we actually know is that people were ill and something caused their illness. We were told it was a virus. People have an understanding of the concept of viruses because we have been raised with that language and that concept, and we've been told that that's what causes illness and disease. There just isn't proof of that. And Michael Yeadon, who has an entire career at the highest levels of studying these exact questions, has no problem now saying that in public. He also made another note that I have made repeatedly over the last couple of years. There are no true COVID deaths. Every COVID death is either data malpractice or medical malpractice. And he also mentions murder. Murder by way of medical malpractice is what I say when I mean that COVID deaths are medical malpractice. The data malpractice side is something else. If you get in a car accident and die and they do a COVID test on you and the test comes up positive, even though we know those tests don't work and you are marked down as a COVID death, well, that's data malpractice. The hospital didn't kill you through the COVID protocols in that instance. You died from the car accident. And most people understand by now that the flu was completely wiped out in 2020 to be replaced with COVID. We know about the medical protocol, the hospital protocol, remdesivir, that causes renal failure, and eventually you end up on a ventilator. 90% of those people die. They created massive death numbers for money to enhance the public narrative and the fear campaign surrounding COVID. 
And while it's important that we have doctors and experts out there talking about the problems with the vaccines and the problems with the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry, it is important that we also have people like this who are taking the ball all the way down the field and saying, hey, this entire branch of science may in fact be founded on nothing. We know the system has been corrupted beyond all possible understanding. We do not need to assume that the part some people are still hanging on to, the claim that there was indeed a novel viral pathogen that we call COVID-19, may absolutely be as anti-scientific as the idea that plexiglass walls on the outsides of children's desks can prevent kids from passing COVID in a classroom. And speaking of the very deadly pandemic, we talked last week about how Rochelle Walensky has stepped down as director of the CDC. And a lot of people had observed that without a new job that she was already planning to head to, it seemed like maybe people were souring on Walensky. Generally, people like Rochelle Walensky, who are installed in a position in order to help enact an agenda, when they run out of usefulness, they are moved off to the side, but often with a cushy job somewhere that's going to pay them a lot of money to not do very much. So people were surprised that Rochelle Walensky did not have one of those lined up to announce when she stepped down. But Naomi Wolf was on War Room last night talking about all things COVID vaccine and the work that she's doing at Daily Clout IO. They've released a recent report on more pharma industry vaccine documents. The latest report deals with the fact that they knew from the beginning that women who were thinking of becoming pregnant, pregnant mothers, and then mothers who had given birth and were breastfeeding could be endangered by the vaccine, and so could their babies. Just another one of those facts that most of us were aware of from the beginning. But she also dropped this little nugget. Right now, we're in a very ugly situation in which I heard, again, back channels, um, but, but good back channels that Dr. Walensky was offered a gig with the Clinton Foundation. I don't think that's been announced yet, but that doesn't surprise me. And literally a day or two after she resigned, Chelsea Clinton is in the media announcing a big get every child vaccinated campaign that, that she's going to be the face of. So they're not quitting. They're not stopping. Now, for most of the last few years, the Clintons have been largely out of the picture. Hillary didn't have a real role in the whole COVID thing. Yes, she would go out and repeat all the slogans and say all the party lines about what we need to do to save lives and protect everybody. She wanted people to get the vaccines, but she certainly wasn't some major figure involved with the pandemic rollout or really any of it. She kind of just floated along behind the scenes, at least compared to how she normally is out there in front of everything, trying to set the narrative agenda. But I'm starting to think that maybe we missed something here. Why in the world would the Clinton Foundation be the organization to continue paying Rochelle Walensky after she leaves the CDC? That doesn't seem like a normal relationship there. Why is Chelsea out pushing the vaccines in May 2023? 
Now, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I figured I'd bring it to your attention because I feel like we might begin hearing more about this. If Rochelle Walensky ends up working for the Clinton Foundation, I think you would have to suspect there is some larger relationship going on there behind the scenes that we haven't really talked about to this point. And if you have background on that, by all means, send it my way. So yesterday I shared the clip of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. discussing the assassinations of his uncle, John F. Kennedy, and his father, Robert F. Kennedy, on John Katsimatidis's radio show on WABC in New York. RFK Jr. suggested there was overwhelming evidence indicating that the CIA was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he suggested that there is very strong evidence, most of it circumstantial, that the CIA was involved in the assassination of his father as well. He went on Sean Hannity's show on Fox News last night and repeated those claims. Today, we get new polling from Rasmussen. This is written up in the National Pulse. RFK Jr. ties Biden in primary poll. One in five Dems say they'd pick Trump Kennedy over Biden Harris. Rasmussen reports ask likely voters if the candidates for the 2024 Democratic presidential nomination were Joe Biden, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson, which candidate would you vote for? Respondents were split between Kennedy Jr. and Biden, with Kennedy Jr. receiving 35 percent and Joe Biden already polling at historic lows as of May 2023, receiving just 36 percent. The third option, Marianne Williamson, received only 6%. When broken down into party affiliation, Joe Biden remains the frontrunner with 62% of Democratic support. Kennedy Jr., on the other hand, is supported by nearly one in five Democrats. And obviously, he's much stronger with Republicans and independents. Because if you're still claiming to be a Democrat in May of 2023, you are probably firmly attached to pretending that Joe Biden is the greatest president ever, and that would be proven by him winning again. Rasmussen asked likely U.S. voters, if Donald Trump were to win the 2024 Republican presidential nomination and choose Robert F. Kennedy Jr. as his vice presidential running mate against President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, who would you vote for? The results were divided once again, with both receiving a total of 44%. Unsurprisingly, the vast majority of Republicans would favor Trump and Kennedy, and the exact same amount of Democrats would prefer Biden and Harris, 72% in each case. However, more Democrats, one in five, would consider voting for Trump and Kennedy over Biden and Harris. There are fewer Republicans, just 12%, who say they would vote for Biden and Harris. So if nothing else, that should provide some insight as to why the Democrats do not want Joe Biden up on a debate stage with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. RFK Jr. appeals to people that the Democrats simply cannot reach any longer while they stick with this Biden-Harris pursuit of the global regime's agenda. Also yesterday, we discussed the building pressure on the Biden crime family and James Comer was back out on Fox News talking about what we might see and hear tomorrow as they present the American public with more information on the Biden family's history of political corruption. 
you know, we're going to present the American people with the facts, the facts about what the Biden family has been doing. Uh, one thing we learned when we had access to the Treasury suspicious activity reports is that the Bidens had created many LLCs in many different bank accounts, and there were many Biden families that were in on the influence peddling scheme. So we're going to present bank records tomorrow. Uh, we're going to also uh, talk about the different uh, people that they were taking money from, uh, their ties to foreign nationals in some of the worst countries uh, on the planet. And I think the American people are going to have a lot of questions for Joe Biden. We'll see if the mainstream media has questions for Joe Biden. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. But are you saying that if the DOJ waits to indict Hunter until you release this information, that there's possible other Biden family members or people tied to this that may be indicted as well? Well, the, I think the Department of Justice would have a lot of questions for some of these Biden family members as to why they receive wire transfers from uh, entities linked to the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, these family members don't have any business experience. Uh, it doesn't appear to me that any of the businesses that they were laundering money through uh, are even legitimate businesses. And we just have a lot of questions for the Bidens. But from every uh, report we've read with respect to the DOJ investigation of Hunter Biden, it's focused on uh, the president's son not paying taxes for a couple of years and lying on a gun application. I mean, that is a drop in the bucket to what we've found on Hunter Biden. And I don't know if the Department of Justice is aware of all the different LLCs and all the different schemes in all the different countries that we are aware of. And we're going to present those facts to the American people tomorrow. So you can't uh, have a credible uh, case against the president's son and just indict him for not paying taxes for a couple of years. I mean, this is this is an individual who probably could get indicted for money laundering, who could get indicted for, for possible racketeering, who could get indicted for not being a registered foreign agent. And the list goes on and on and on. So uh, we hope that the Department of Justice will sit down tomorrow and watch our press conference and read our memo. We're presenting a memo to the American people, to the media. Uh, it's going to be on our website, to the American people, to see the exact transactions, the exact countries, and and some of the, the, the family members that were involved in this influence peddling scheme, and, and really see some names of some of these people in these other countries that have been convicted in other countries of crimes. I mean, they were dealing with very bad actors in some very bad countries. So that memo is supposed to come out tomorrow. They're going to have a press conference in the morning. And then Donald Trump is going to have all of that floating through the news cycle out there in the mainstream media all day long. And he shows up in New Hampshire tomorrow evening for a town hall on CNN. One would think we are going to see some sort of major attempt at distraction in the next 24 hours. Ron Johnson was also on Fox News talking about what they've uncovered about the Bidens. One thing that we don't talk enough about, uh, I know President Biden's just so proud of his son, but let's, you know, we have the evidence that Hunter Biden paid for, paid tens of thousands of dollars for prostitutes that were sex trafficked through an international sex trafficking ring. Oh. I mean, I mean, uh, yes, ick. 
And President Biden, during about a four or five month period, offered to pay for about $100,000 of, of Hunter Biden's bills when he was spending tens of thousands of dollars on these women who are sex trafficked. Now, if, if that is at a minimum morally reprehensible and wrong, and the president's defending that, and the media isn't even looking well, into it. Well, wouldn't that be a felony? I mean, if you're I doing business with a sex trafficking ring, that that's more than ethically offensive. It is grotesque, but the media doesn't concentrate on it. We had that in our report. We, we had the, the business, the, the financial transactions proving it. James Comer does the same thing. But again, it's, it, it is so icky. It's so reprehensible. It is. People don't want to talk about it, but it's just galling to hear the president talk about how proud he is of Hunter. And he, he, he enables this. He enables it by propping up his son, both in, in terms of those types of words as well as financially. It's, it's really pretty sick. So it seems like what we'll be getting from Comer and from Johnson tomorrow in this memo is an outline of everything they have found about the Biden family and why we probably won't see any immediate action. And of course, we've gotten used to that by now. It will be a major move in the narrative, and it's going to be the sort of thing that the media can't just simply avoid. They'll try to spin off narratives and say things are conspiracy theories or say this or that isn't a big deal. But the story is going to be there in full for people to go over and really begin to get an understanding of just how corrupt the Biden family is. Now, the fake president, Joe Biden, is supposed to be meeting this afternoon with Kevin McCarthy and his Democrat counterpart in the House, Akeem Jeffries, as well as the Senate majority and minority leaders, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. And the reporting says the expectation is Joe Biden will ask for an extension of the debt ceiling to the end of September, and that will be the extent of negotiations on his side. They will try to double down and say that the House and Senate must pass a clean debt ceiling raise so that he can sign it and just keep going and there will be no spending cuts whatsoever. It seems like McCarthy is locked into his position that if they want the debt ceiling raised at all, they're going to have to scale back the spending from the omnibus bill passed in the lame duck session last winter. It seems pretty clear that there's not going to be any sort of deal reached and this will just keep going. Apparently, the White House thinks that it has some leverage it can exert on House Republicans. But there's absolutely no reason to believe that they actually have any leverage whatsoever. So the Get Trump effort marches on. We discussed the effort in Georgia yesterday. This is from the Washington Examiner last evening. New York judge silences Trump on social media posts about hush money case. A New York judge has barred former President Donald Trump from posting on social media concerning evidence in the criminal case related to hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. State Supreme Court Justice Juan Mershon's order said anyone who has access to the evidence cannot copy, disseminate, or disclose the evidence to any third party, including social media, without court approval. Trump can review limited materials, quote, in the presence of defense counsel, but defendants shall not be permitted to copy, photograph, transcribe, or otherwise independently possess the evidence. Mershon also restricted Trump from publicly discussing witnesses or evidence in the case. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. People were discussing a potential gag order, making it so that Donald Trump could not address what was happening in his own trials in public. 
The judge has now imposed some sort of gag order and Trump plans to contest that in court. I said a few weeks ago it would be interesting to see whether they took that step and tried to impose some sort of gag order so that that issue can actually be adjudicated in court because it might come up again in the future for someone other than Trump. So it's good to get a standard set on how that sort of thing will proceed. So yet another legal issue that we will have to pay attention to, but that's not all. The jury in the E. Jean Carroll rape accusation trial against Donald Trump has returned a verdict. This is from Zero Hedge. Jury finds Trump liable for sexual assault, but not rape in New York defamation case. The jury awarded Carroll $20,000 in punitive damages for a battery claim and $2.7 million in compensatory damages for defamation by Trump. Trump, who has long denied her allegation dating back to the mid-90s, accused Carol of using false claims as a way to promote her book. I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Number two, it never happened. The then president told The Hill in an interview at the White House in June 2019. Zero Hedge lays out the options and what the jury would be dealing with today. U.S. District Judge Louis A. Kaplan read the instructions on the law to the nine-person jury before the panel began discussing Carol's allegations of battery and defamation shortly before noon. If they believe Carol, jurors can award compensatory and punitive damages. Trump, who did not attend the trial, has insisted he never sexually assaulted Carol or even knew her. Kaplan told jurors that the first question on the verdict form will be to decide whether they think there is more than a 50% chance that Trump raped Carol inside a store dressing room. If they answer yes, they will then decide whether compensatory and punitive damages should be awarded. If they answer no on the rape question, they can then decide if Trump subjected her to lesser forms of assault involving sexual contact without her consent or forcible touching to degrade her or gratify his sexual desire. If they answer yes on either of those questions, they will decide if damages are appropriate. Technofog weighed in on this as well. He said the jurors have reached a verdict in the E. Jean Carroll versus Trump lawsuit. Trump is cleared of rape, but found liable for sexual abuse. The damages awarded to Carroll $5 million. Now, that's obviously quite a bit different than the $2.7 million noted in the Zero Hedge article. A very strange finding by the jury. It didn't believe Carroll's rape story, but did believe her abuse story. So the New York judge and the New York jury have done their part in the get Trump effort. This decision has been rendered. This decision will, of course, be appealed. And one would imagine that it will be thrown out. Think about what we're actually dealing with here. A legitimately crazy lady who thinks she's been raped by 20 people can't remember when this incident occurred. Not the day, the month, the year, none of it. She comes out of nowhere and claims that Trump raped her in a dressing room in Bergdorf Goodman. She's been on TV to discuss all this. It's always very weird. You remember the conversation I played a couple of weeks ago between her and Anderson Cooper, where she talks about rape being a sexy thing. And naturally, there's never been any evidence whatsoever to suggest that any of this is real. The scene she described 
happened to also be a scene from Law and Order SVU. But she brings this case forward. It's funded by Reed Hoffman, the CEO founder of LinkedIn, a man connected to Jeffrey Epstein, a Democrat donor considering funding Ron DeSantis. They get this civil trial in front of a New York court, a New York judge, a New York jury. And the jury is told that they must decide whether there is a 50% or better chance that they believe E. Jean Carroll and what she's saying about Donald Trump. They decide there's an under 50% chance that Donald Trump raped her, but maybe a better than 50% chance that he forcibly touched her. And for that forcible touching, E. Jean Carroll is awarded $20,000. Then they decide that because E. Jean Carroll probably wasn't completely and totally lying, even though she was about the rape thing, Trump owes her a few million dollars for saying mean things about her. So congratulations to the American justice system, once again, showing us exactly what it is at this point. No one is going to believe this who didn't already believe that Donald Trump was terrible, similarly without evidence. And the really deranged part is that people with very strong Trump hatred in their hearts are going to go around saying that Trump is a rapist because of this court's decision, even though they said he wasn't in the decision. Trump responded on Truth Social, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. This is going to be a good opportunity to see who in conservative incorporated media goes after this story and participates with the Trump deranged in saying that Trump is now a proven rapist, according to this civil trial and this jury decision that he may have touched her. It really does say a lot about people's character that they will go along with something like this. Trump often says that it's not him they're going after. It's you. And he's just standing in the way. But the people who continue to go after him don't seem to understand that. They don't seem to understand that when they promote this sort of political attack, using lawfare, abusing the justice system in this country, they're helping to cement the idea that this is how things should be done. And that's absolutely disgraceful. It's also worth remembering that E. Jean Carroll filed this suit after New York law was changed to allow her to do it. They updated the New York Adult Survivors Act to create a one-year window where the statute of limitations could be ignored and people were allowed to bring lawsuits over claims from the past where the statutes of limitations had expired. So all of this was set up to create this scenario and go after Trump. They legitimately changed the laws to go after Trump, very similar to the Alvin Bragg case, where he has created a novel legal theory to go after Trump and keep Trump from running. It's also kind of the same as the bill that Ron DeSantis is potentially signing in Florida, allowing him to run without resigning and changing a whole bunch of election laws. Ron DeSantis still hasn't signed that bill. And you have to wonder why. Either they're waiting for specific timing 
probably to steal a news cycle. It's a strategic move to sign it on a certain day and get those headlines. And that could obviously still happen. It's also possible that Ron DeSantis just won't sign it. I think the strangest scenario would be if Ron does sign it and then still doesn't announce a campaign, but that might be just a move to steal two news cycles. You get one when you sign the bill because everybody believes, oh, that means Ron's running. And then you get another when he decides to actually run. Whether he does or not probably makes no difference to Donald Trump and makes no difference to any potential Republican primary, but it will make a difference to Ron DeSantis. His career would end immediately if he chooses to. Steve Cortez, a frequent guest on Steve Bannon's War Room, decided that he was Team DeSantis today and wrote an article about it in Newsweek. The reaction to that has been absolutely atrocious. And the DeSantis simps are already out there saying, hey, it's not just Steve Cortez. We have more big, impressive names coming out to back Ron DeSantis. And that's a pretty funny reaction because it's basically the admission that Steve Cortez announcing his DeSantis support did not do a thing for Ron DeSantis. No one cares. And the reaction to Steve Cortez has been horrific. You can imagine that he was well-paid, and maybe that'll be worth something for a little while. Now, while the regime is using lawfare to target Donald Trump and the America First movement with this endless string of ridiculous accusations, Donald Trump's America First legal is pushing back on issues that actually matter. This is from yesterday. America First legal releases new internal DHS documents revealing the government is funding trainings intended to target conservative Americans. Today, America First Legal released documents obtained from a Freedom of Information Act request to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that reveal shocking internal documents from the Office of Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention regarding so-called domestic terrorism. In an internal memo dated January 29th, 2021, just eight days after Joe Biden was sworn in as president, reveals a choose-your-own-adventure game-like memo for individuals to make real-life decisions based on radicalization scenarios with various fictitious characters. The scenarios describe political viewpoints like opinions on abortion and expanded government, and they attach a screenshot of that document. The heading is DHS OTVTP Choose your own adventure outline bullet points. We propose creating five story branches, each with three video scenes that advance the story for a total of 15 film scenes. Bystanders are presented with three difficult choices that approximate real life decisions at the end of each scene. At the end of each branch, after viewers have made three choices impacting the potential radicalization of others, a DHS employee reviews the path they have chosen and highlights key learnings in an interview that expands on how radicalization and potential violence may occur in the scenarios. And they list a variety of character types. For example, one of these characters is Anne, who is described as, quote, a middle-aged pro-life advocate. And another is Courtney, a, quote, budding conspiracy theorist. They also outline Pete who they describe as anti-government and authority and an abusive parent slash stepdad. 
and they build out full profiles of these people complete with stock photography on what they might look like. Guess whether all of them are white people. Another document reveals DHS planned a family first photo shoot to, quote, show everyday people doing everyday tasks to emphasize that domestic terrorism can happen to anyone, but that anyone can also help prevent it. In their planning documents, DHS states, quote, when casting, we would like to share diverse race, gender, cultural individuals that align to the same distribution of the United States based on the breakdown of the most recent census. These documents further reveal that the government is using taxpayer dollars to expand its capabilities to deem innocent people as extremists or domestic terrorists. They include a statement from Reed Rubenstein, who's the America First legal senior counselor and director of investigations. The Department of Homeland Security's transformation into a domestic intelligence organization and a Stasi-like deep state internal security apparatus is alarming. It is a very long way from see something, say something regarding an unattended suitcase at the airport to profiling patriotic and politically conservative Americans as abusive parents and domestic terrorists because they oppose abortion on demand and voted for former President Trump. The agency is out of control. We've discussed Mike Benz before, the former State Department official working on cyber issues. He is also the founder of the Foundation for Freedom Online. He wrote a thread in response to this yesterday. New docs obtained by America First Legal show DHS plan to produce videos training bystanders to take action against political speech by, quote unquote, middle aged pro-life advocates and old high school friends who are budding conspiracy theorists. Not content with only a ministry of truth, an Internet censorship bureau and even a program for controlling speech in video games, DHS sought to pit citizens to monitor one another's political beliefs under the guise of de-radicalization. DHS screen wrote a detailed profile for Anne, a middle-aged pro-life advocate. She is a suburban mom surrounded by stock footage of laundry and minivan who has become increasingly more concerned about the welfare of other children. In one scenario, Anne utters the phrase baby killer at a local bakery event to signify her opposition to abortion. DHS gives you, the bystander, three choices, calling Anne's husband, contacting Anne's preacher, or stopping by Anne's house. In another DHS scenario, the audience plays Anne's hairdresser and listens as Anne brings up pro-life arguments and begins ranting. DHS gives you three choices, calling the sheriff on Anne, talking about Anne to co-workers, or sleuthing Anne's groups. (laughs) Those are amazing choices, honestly. So you can either narc on Anne, you can gossip about Anne with your coworkers, or you can stalk Anne. Those are the appropriate responses when you hear someone in your life saying the no-no words. (laughs) Call the police, gossip about them, or stalk them online. DHS built a stock profile for Courtney, an old high school friend who is a budding conspiracy theorist. Again, suburban mom, laundry, minivan. DHS targets her because she believes, quote, conspiracy theories regarding government connections to child abuse and trafficking, 
end quote. Conspiracy theories, not real facts about the world that are proven over and over again every day. All it takes to trigger DHS is Courtney, quote, beginning to spread conspiracy theories and the level of anger in her posts rising, end quote. And that's kind of a stunning metric, anger in posts, isn't it? Particularly when you understand that the social media algorithms thrive on providing content that will create those kinds of reactions in the people who view that content. So they can actively try to make you mad. And then if you get mad, if you get mad, according to what sounds like you're mad to them, well, then you're a domestic terrorist. DHS gives you three choices. Monitor Courtney's conversations, contact her ex-husband, or message her to probe her personal life. They're actually trying to figure out a way to make liberals and normies more annoying. They're trying to increase the social costs on anyone who says the no-no words. In another scenario, you play Courtney's mom and hear your daughter angry over government connections to Jeffrey Epstein-style acts of harm to children. DHS gives you three choices. Confront Courtney directly, pull her longtime boyfriend aside, or call a crisis hotline. DHS also built a stock figure for Pete, an anti-government, anti-authority father figure. We are told Pete is an abusive parent and stepdad, but no details are given as to what makes him abusive. He seems like a quiet guy and mostly keeps to himself. DHS targets Pete because a friend saw him, quote, post on some radical sites with violent tendencies, end quote, presumably a web forum like 4chan. Pete did not make any calls for violence. DHS's three options, contacting Pete's wife, cornering Pete at a softball game, or simply keeping closer tabs. So you got to monitor Pete if you find out that Pete was on a bad website. And maybe the DHS isn't being entirely responsible here because they're encouraging cornering Pete at a softball game, but Pete's an abusive parent and stepdad. So if you corner him at the softball game, Pete might kick your ass. DHS essentially planned out government-funded instruction videos for creating a modern Stasi class where citizens are encouraged to report on one another, even when no laws have been broken. Under Biden, DHS has moved aggressively into video propaganda for political policing in new and disturbing ways. And Benz has reported on this before and links to work by his organization, the Foundation for Freedom Online. He says they reported how DHS created a cartoon urging young people to report their own family members to Facebook for disinformation over posts about COVID. Benz concludes, It is telling that such political police programs are now parked at DHS rather than at FBI. FBI is an arm of DOJ, so it needs suspected lawbreaking to act. DHS appears to think it can operate in any area of citizen life, like the lawful speech zone where FBI is limited. And honestly, thank goodness for the Department of Homeland Security going out and protecting us from Middle Eastern terrorists, right? That was the whole point of the organization, wasn't it? I mean, foreign terrorists, right? Not, oh no, they're just going to figure out ways to label Americans terrorists and then go after Americans. That is 
the deep state and the federal bureaucracy being weaponized directly against the American people. And let's just take a second on how they're going about doing this. They're basically plotting out the production of these little short films so that they can suggest to the American public that any time they hear people in their lives saying the no-no words, they should immediately spring to action. They're creating stories where the moral of the story is that you have to turn your neighbors and family members and friends in if you hear them say the wrong things about politics. And the critical thing to take note of is that none of these things are even particularly extreme. Jeffrey Epstein is a real guy with real powerful friends. We've been talking about this for a couple weeks now. Epstein was a pedophile and a trafficker. There is nothing extremist in talking about that. It's a fact of the world that's reported by the mainstream media. The other lady said baby killer. And that might not be the sort of phrase that is approved of in polite conversation in liberal circles, but it's what abortion is. It's okay to describe it that way. That can be your viewpoint on abortion. That's not extreme. People can hope for a more nuanced conversation around abortion, but saying the phrase baby killer is not completely out of line. And Pete, that poor guy, all he did was go to the wrong website. And it's not like they're just putting up a hotline number. Hey, if you hear something that's actually dangerous, give us a call. They're creating stories to make people believe that things they are almost certain to experience in the course of normal life, just in dealing with different people who have different opinions, qualify as violent rhetoric or domestic terrorism. And that it's everyone's job to make sure that no one is saying anything like it. And it's become redundant to call things Orwellian, but what else are you supposed to call it? This is straight out of 1984. Now, yesterday, West Virginia Secretary of State Mac Warner wrote a letter addressed to the House Committee on House Administration. Now, the letter is a little long, but I think it's worth sharing and you will see why. Here it is. Thank you for the opportunity to testify before the Committee on House Administration on Thursday, April 27th, 2023, regarding election integrity and voter confidence. As a West Point cadet more than four decades ago, I lived by the honor code that, quote, I will not lie, cheat, steal or tolerate those who do. When I took office as West Virginia's chief election officer, I took an oath to support the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of West Virginia. It is therefore my most unfortunate but necessary duty to reemphasize my oral testimony addressing the sinister domestic elements that improperly influenced the outcome of the 2020 election, which must be addressed if we are to have a free and fair election in the upcoming 2024 cycle. The 2024 election was not fairly and consistently administered across our nation. Ominous elements, both inside and outside of the U.S. government, deprived Americans of a free and fair election. I will begin with the more nuanced finger on the scale type of improprieties and move to the most blatant, insidious disinformation operation conducted on the American people in our election history. 
in that regard, yes, the 2020 election was stolen and we cannot allow it to occur again. Confidence in the processes through which Americans elect their representatives and the outcome of those elections is directly related to voters' experiences and belief that the elections were conducted fairly, transparently, and in accordance with the letter of the law. It is critically important that all government officials maintain the integrity of the election processes by not just following the laws prescribed by state legislatures, but also by not tolerating activities that seem to undermine those processes in favor of one candidate or political party. Looking forward to the 2024 federal election cycle, we must learn from the inconsistent applications of assumed authorities that occurred in the 2020 election and affirmatively address the irregularities. This is not a call for denial or protest, but an objective truth that we cannot move forward if we do not learn from mistakes. The election clause directs the path forward, which is through the state legislatures. Those bodies and they alone are charged with the duty of filling statutory gaps and clarifying state election procedures. Specifically, in states where local officials were directed to count ballots that did not satisfy the statutory requirements, those ballots were illegal. Examples include ballots without signatures or with signatures that did not match the voter record, ballots dated outside the acceptable voting period or without a date at all, and ballots received after the receipt deadline, all of which, according to state law, should not have been counted. If it is the will of legislatures to change those requirements or deadlines, those legislatures are the only authority to amend the policies. And he's obviously right about that. States have to follow their own laws if they describe a process that makes a vote legal and that process isn't followed, it's not complied with, and they can't prove that it is, then that vote isn't legal. And somehow we have completely lost sight of that. We know that hundreds of thousands of ballots in states all over the country were accepted as legal, even though they did not fit the requirements of law. Back to the letter. In other states where ballot drop boxes were permitted by an executive branch official, contrary to the express language of their statutes, those unattended ballot receptacles were illegal. In some of these instances, the courts have ruled unambiguously that only state legislatures have the authority to prescribe that manner of voting. The Supreme Court of the United States in Texas versus Pennsylvania tossed out one state's attempt to protect its voters' interests by challenging other states' actions in the 2020 election that fell under the doctrine of ultra vires, where those states' officials exceeded the authorizations granted by their legislatures and through executive, not legislative action, ordered ballots to be counted that were cast outside the law. However, the court refused to hear the challenge on the merits, finding that a state does not have a legal interest in how other states carried out their elections. And that was the case that Ken Paxton brought with 18 other state attorneys general following the 2020 election. The argument was if other states are not following their election laws in a federal election, then we end up with a president and senators and congressmen who participate in governing the entire country who did not, in fact, win their elections by the standards in each state required by each state's laws. 
Regardless, the court holds a state does not have a legal interest to challenge another's ultra virus election activities. It is a simple but powerful truth that ballots cast without voter ID where required voting locations that prohibit observers when authorized by law ballots accepted after the deadline and ballot envelopes not containing the requisite signatures or dates must all be rejected to maintain both the voters confidence and integrity in the election. However, that did not occur in the 2020 election. Therefore, we must turn to our state legislatures to expressly prescribe what is and is not within those executive branch officials authority to decide to increase election confidence and protect the integrity of the 2024 election. Legislatures should be called on to amend laws to reduce statutory gaps, tighten ambiguous text and clean up provisions that can be taken advantage of and cause unintended consequences. Changing or bending rules to favor one person or group over another is not a novel tactic. In sports, a player can shave points, intentionally lose, use prohibited drugs to gain an unfair advantage, bribe a referee, use ineligible players, alter the running of a clock, and recruit outside the rules, all of which help tip the scales on the outcome of the games. Similarly, in elections, changing or bending the rules can impact the outcome. Though one or two irregularities might be excused as mistakes or oversights, the collection of multiple improprieties in the same election cannot be overlooked. The West Point Honor Code is an example of the moral compass that society expects all persons in power to follow. Per the code, we cannot tolerate those who lie, cheat, or steal. While the partisan left has held fast that there was no, quote, widespread fraud, or at least not enough to change the outcome of an election. We must not tolerate the executive branch actions and tactics of going beyond the express authorities prescribed by state's legislatures. First, no amount of fraud is acceptable, outcome determinant or not. The standard should not be whether the fraud might change the outcome, but rather whether alleged fraud occurred and if so, it must be addressed. Second, it is undisputed that several states changed election processes and deadlines during the 2020 election under assumptions of authority that were beyond those granted by their legislatures. While the common label of those activities has been fraud, it is not always so simple. Regardless, what is most important to realize is that such changes decreased voter confidence. It's not just the reality of our election outcomes that is important, but equally so the voters' perception of the propriety of the processes through which those outcomes were reached. Third, a number of states accepted funding from private sources without express authorization by their legislatures. Dressed in a just-here-to-help fashion, the sources of that funding, once learned by the general public, caused significant national concerns. Whether the funding was offered uniformly to all jurisdictions is irrelevant. The fact that hundreds of millions of dollars of private investment was injected into the 2020 election on a scale that was a first in our nation's history cannot simply remain unaddressed. Thankfully, some states' legislatures took swift action and have clarified whether or how private funding may be accepted by election officials. However, that does not shed light on what occurred in 2020. Combined, the activities described above lowered confidence in our elections. All ballots cast or counted in a manner that does not comply with the authority given to state officials by their state legislature 
thrusts those ballots into question. This should be unacceptable to everyone, not just members of one political party or another. Moving forward into 2024, to maintain voter confidence and integrity of the election, it is crystal clear that election processes in law must be followed verbatim and any changes or departures therefrom must be debated and crafted by states' legislatures before implementation. I now turn to an equally important issue and perhaps the most insidious election interference operation in our nation's history, outdistancing run-of-the-mill fraud, election irregularities, and nefarious assumptions of authority was the direct attack on the people of the United States by veteran intelligence officials at the behest of a presidential candidate. The recent release of records showing the Biden campaign's efforts to generate a disinformation psychological operation concerning a letter designed to directly impact the outcome of the 2020 presidential election and, without parsing words, effort to steal the election from President Trump. Again, this is the Secretary of State of West Virginia in a letter summarizing his testimony to the U.S. Congress. The letter signed by 51 former intelligence agency agents regarding the Hunter Biden laptop was powerful. According to recently released communications, that was the point. Disinformation is a purposeful lie, and that is what the letter was, a lie to the American people to influence their vote in the presidential election. The letter was intentionally wrong, initiated within the Biden campaign, and then purposely delivered to an acquiescing press that failed to do its due diligence. Then big tech helped cover it up and squash distribution of the real truthful story. Adding insult to injury, the FBI watched it all occur and was therefore complacent in the disinformation operation. And I think he means complicit. The situation was made worse when just days after the letter was made public, then candidate Joe Biden cited the letter in a nationally televised debate to discredit his opponent, President Trump. Biden's campaign knew the letter to be a lie of their own making. The Biden campaign, in collusion with intelligence officers who cited their credentials with the CIA, DNI, NSA, NCC, and FBI, conducted that disinformation campaign against the American people for political purposes. Now that their disinformation operation has been exposed, some of the 51 former intelligence agents are trying to cover themselves with assertions that they only said the laptop story had, quote, the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, end quote, and that their national security experience made them deeply suspicious. Make no mistake, their participation was knowing. They knew the press would run with their lie, regardless of the wording. Their letter stated the Russians were trying to influence how America voted when in fact it was they who were improperly influencing Americans' opinions on how to vote. Their excuses now only make the matter worse. Every one of our federal government agencies and personnel that took part in the election interference regarding the Hunter Biden laptop should be excoriated. The participants permanently prohibited from ever working inside government again. Their security clearances revoked criminal charges brought where appropriate, and any of those individuals currently serving in positions of public trust should be removed. That is the way to begin to restore voter confidence in America. As I said in my original testimony, I take no pleasure in casting aspersions on any U.S. government agency. I'm a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. 
I spent 23 years in the United States Army, serving my country in military hotspots throughout the world. I spent five additional years with the U.S. Department of State implementing the rule of law in Afghanistan. I'm an American soldier who understands honor and service above self. Now as Secretary of State and West Virginia's Chief Election Officer, I have taken an oath to protect the constitutions of the United States and West Virginia and abide by the rule of law. I'm trusted by West Virginia voters to run free and fair elections. Therefore, it is my duty to speak out and declare that the evidence shows our own federal agencies were complicit in the disinformation campaign and what certain state officials did during the 2020 election was not legitimate or fair. We cannot stand complacently and allow those actions to be repeated in 2024. Truly, our democratic republic is at stake. Government is never authorized to act beyond the legal authority it is expressly granted. As we continue to learn of the actions in 2020 that eroded the confidence and integrity of the election, it is imperative that we identify and prevent the same actions from taking place in the upcoming 2024 election process. We have come to expect China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and other foreign enemies to attack us and undermine our democratic republic. But it is far worse when our nation is undermined from within. To that end, our states and our Congress must take strong, immediate steps within the bounds of our U.S. Constitution to ensure it never happens again. And good for Mac Warner. He makes the case in full. Now, I don't agree that the biggest example of election interference is the Hunter Biden laptop and everything surrounding it, though that certainly is big. And I want to be clear, I'm not trying to diminish that in any way. Everyone who signed that letter participated in election interference and participated in the usurpation of the American government. And for that, they should all stand trial, maybe for treason. But that's not the biggest issue, and that's not the primary issue as far as I'm concerned. We can assume that something like that is never going to happen again, and we could even try to create some perfect system to ensure that that never happens again. But even if that factor is eliminated completely, the election system itself is still the problem. Every element of these election systems, if you go state by state, they're all a little different. But in each case, the system is set up to create loopholes that enable stolen elections. We can fix the Hunter Biden thing and the Intel community thing, but that doesn't actually do anything to fix the election system. Of course, it's important that the letter of the law is followed and that the laws are enacted by state legislatures as the Constitution requires. But the problem still remains that the people in office right now were unlawfully elected and they themselves are the products of stolen elections. Now, I'm not saying any of that to say that Mac Warner's letter is not good. It's very good. What I am saying is that we need a whole lot more of this and we need all of it directed toward the entirety of the problem. As always, all of this is a process, but this is a nice step forward, and hopefully the people who read it will understand the scale of what we're actually dealing with. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic, and Joe Biden will never be president. 
In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that 
is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!